0: welcome once again to another episode of the It's Not Brain Surgery podcast, the AANS practice and business management podcast. I'm your host for today's show, Paul Camerata, and we're really honored to have with us Lou Tumialan, who is professor of neurosurgery at the Barrow Neurological Institute, specializing in minimally invasive spinal surgery. Dr. Allen graduated from Georgetown University School of Medicine, completed his internship at the Naval Medical Center, and then Completed additional training serving our country in undersea medicine in Connecticut and the Navy Dive School in Panama City. After completion of the operational training there, he served as the diving medical officer assigned to the Naval Special Warfare Unit 1 in Guam during the global war on terror in the aftermath of September 11, 2001. And he received the Naval and Marine Corps Commendation Medal for service in support of Operation Enduring Freedom in Southeast Asia. And a Navy Humanitarian Medal for the search and maritime rescue of a foreign national. After he returned to the mainland, Dr. Toomialin completed his neurosurgery training at Emory and returned to the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. He joined Barrow Neuro and Spine in 2010, where he now serves as a director of minimally invasive spine surgery. Dr. Toomialin's main interests are in minimally invasive spinal surgery and motion preservation surgery, as well as developing techniques for the next generation of spinal surgery. He's served a number of roles in organized neurosurgery, the scientific program chair and annual meeting chair for the AANS-CNS spine section. He currently serves as a secretary for that organization and has also served as the scientific program chair for the Society of Minimally Invasive Spinal Surgeons and the International Society of the advancement of spinal surgery. His interest in socioeconomics, which is what we're going to be talking about today, has led him to the CSNS where he served as treasurer, corresponding secretary, and currently vice chair. He's on the editorial board of JNS Spine and associate editor for operative neurosurgery and has authored over a hundred peer-reviewed articles, and 20 book chapters. He published in 2020 a single-authored textbook entitled Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery, a Primer. And he lives in Phoenix with his wife, Andrea, and three kids. Lou, welcome to the AANS Practice and Business Management Podcast. It's an honor.
1: No, Paul, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege for me to
0: be here. Well, we're really excited to talk to you today about the topic is denial of payment after successful prior Authorization, the latest commercial payer ruse. I wanted to start off by just saying, you know, after your experience in the Navy serving our country and then training in neurosurgery, obviously you are an international expert on minimally invasive spinal surgery. How did you get into coding and sort of the business aspect of compensation for neurosurgery in this country?
1: The link to that is actually also my transition from the Navy. I was leaving the Navy and, and I had been receiving these words of caution that, hey, look, the practice of neurosurgery and the practice of medicine is not what you've seen in the military. The military, it's for all intents and purposes, a socialized system where you have a defined population and then all physicians are paid within the medical corps and whatnot. You didn't have to worry about the number of patients you saw, how many surgeries you're you are doing. I mean, it's basically a very contained system. And not a very busy system at that. I mean, to do 15 cases in a month, I still remember individuals going, whoa, doc, slow down. What are you doing? There are times (laughs) where I've been on trauma call. I'll have 15 cases done in a week. But it was in that I go, as I transition out, I better learn this stuff. And so I took the advice I had received from a handful of individuals to heart. I started going to coding courses within a year left of active duty, preparing myself for the transition. I probably took it beyond what I needed to. The void that I felt I had in socioeconomics, I filled and then continued my interest as I transitioned from the military into private practice and saw that it was an area that did not receive a lot of attention and just continued my interest in, in trying to address that. And, and the absence of anyone else wanting to fill that void, I think it's like playing catcher. And in the, in the fastest way in the major yeah. leagues is <laughs> to play catcher. I think the fastest way to advance and organize neurosurgery is in coding reimbursement. It's not very Glamorous too.
0: I mean, one of the first things I did as a new neurosurgeon was took the ANS coding course for a couple of days, and then we at our practice have folks come in and every couple of years give a a huge coding introduction and course to all the crew here, uh, residents, uh, faculty, coders, et cetera. So it's fairly complex. I mean, I know it takes a lot of digging to figure out what's going on, and you've done that really in spades. Talk about the recent prior authorization legislation that certain senators and representatives are trying to get going and actually have, have gone through a fair amount of hurdles to try and get us proper reimbursement quickly.
1: Yeah. And this is a shout out to our Washington office. Katie Ulrico, Kathy Hill can never get enough credit for the work that they do in, in their advocacy efforts. We have a Washington office that has their finger on the pulse and has a very good understanding of what is afoot in the legislative agenda. And the years of experience in Washington has allowed Katie and Kathy to make inroads. One thing that has been established is this onus, this burden, to be able to take care of individuals. And in this setting, the reason the government is involved is because now there are prior authorizations that need to happen for certain Medicare procedures. One of them, as we all know, is the ACDF, where several individuals listening and several individuals today will have cases that it will be delayed or canceled altogether because of a third party that has to approve an operation that is going to be done on a Medicare patient. That has drawn the attention to several legislators and have then recognized that a prior authorization can actually interfere with an individual's care, can compromise the timing, can be very disruptive to a patient's life, a surgeon's practice. When you disrupt a surgeon's practice, you've compromised the ability to take care of others. And so there is legislation afoot that will be looking at anything from a gold card. For example, if there is a surgeon who time and time again has everything approved and is practicing the standard of care, why do they have to go through that process every time? The intent would be to prevent, because the goal of the prior authorization is to prevent unnecessary surgery. Well, I mean, I would say the vast majority of us are doing the operations that are clearly indicated. And so that's, in a nutshell, what is going on in the legislative front there.
0: So they're trying to make it easier for the surgeons to get reimbursement quicker, or at least authorization for that reimbursement. That Um, is correct. Yeah. So how often do denials occur after a successful prior authorization? Here's something that probably a lot of us don't realize is happening in in the background.
1: And that's one of the things that we've discovered in our shop when we look at our accounts receivable. We are looking at cases where there's been a denial of payment despite a Successful authorization. And I ask you, Paul, what other industry works like this? I'll give you a real world situation. December 21st, last year, a pipe broke in my house and we had a flood. And oh, because it was supposed to be our Christmas evening. We we're going to take the kids out and the whole, it was a disaster. So just like a patient has insurance, we have an insurer. We had to get a contractor. We had to get an estimate. We had to do all of the work. And when everything was done, the contractor was paid by my insurer carrier. At no time would my insurance carrier say, oh, we're not going to pay you for all the work that you've done. But in medicine, for example, you'll go and you'll do a procedure on an individual after you get prior authorization. And then at 90 days, you go, hey, I still haven't gotten paid for this. Well, we denied it. And please take a look at your prior authorization where it says that a prior authorization is no guarantee of payment. So what is it? What is this? If my contractor puts a bid down to repair the flood damage and to put in hardwood floors and to do all the things with the walls and actually does that, but then gets denied payment, he sues somebody. What do we do? We go to the next case. And so I have to believe there's an element of commercial payers that have recognized that our offices are just, they've got a learned helplessness. And that if they raise the bar adequately, then we will just just go on to the next case. And the denial of payment after we've brought this up, everyone says, oh, that doesn't happen to me until they actually, none of us are as in tune as with our accounts receivable as we think. Right. And that has got to be part of their business plan, relying on the fact that if they put enough hurdles, because once the denial of payment comes in, all of a sudden now you have a certain time window to put X, Y, and Z. And some of these things can't even be submitted electronically. You have to lick a stamp and put it in the mail as per the instructions for certain commercial payers. Tell me that this is not an intentional way to create enough barriers that the accounts receivable offices are now going to be going, okay, we got to focus on somewhere else because that fruit is too high up on the tree. Let's go to lower line fruit. And as a result, our value is being diminished.
0: And they probably recognize that that's going to happen, that you're not going to devote the time to chasing down that claim. How does your practice do it? Do you have a physicians not, auditing EOBs? or you, you, Not
1: well. You we know. don't do it well at all. Because we always thought, the second I get the prior authorization, because I think we can all agree that just getting the prior authorization is not easy. And we lulled ourselves into a sense of complacency. Oh, I got the prior authorization. All is going to be well. Mm-hmm. And then when we noticed an upward trend in our accounts receivable group outside of 120 days. And one thing I would recommend any of your listeners, take a look. You know, open up the hood, take a look underneath, take a look at the engine. How is your practice working? And whether you're academic, private practice, hospital employed, it all matters. You do not want to um, when I, when i discussed, when we were at the NSA in Chatham and I was chatting with a bunch of my colleagues, there, I was like, look, it really doesn't affect me. I'm hospital employed. I said, no, 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 no. It does affect you. Yeah. It's going to diminish your value over time. And if you can just take a look and see, you'll be surprised how many of these cases where you've done the effort to do the prior authorization that your payment was denied. We are now trying to work out a better system and, you almost need to dedicate one individual to it, which is, again, why if the fruit goes too high on the tree, then business offices say, we'll go after all these other cases. And as a result, we're diminishing our value. Instead of getting 100%, we're settling for 70 75% of the value. And people say, gosh, Lou, you're kind of overly fixated with all the money. This, this you're just, And I said, Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison said it best. It's how you keep score. And it is how you run the business. And no other industry tolerates what we in medicine tolerate, because this is across all, all specialties in medicine, regardless of, of specialty.
0: Talk about the impact on the provider. You've got 10 cases scheduled this week, and you find out the day before that prior auth still hasn't come through after three or four weeks of scheduling it.
1: I was sweating that on Friday for prior auth yesterday, and you don't want to have that void. You have a huge list of individuals who want to be moved up And then you're calling someone to put them on hold in case the prior authorization doesn't go through. This is what legislators need to hear. Is this how you want your mother to be treated? Is this how you want your father to be treated? Your brother, your sister, yourself? To not know, to have that level of uncertainty. Because surgery is surgery, as we say. People fly family members in. They take time off of work. And we've done our due diligence. And they go, well, we don't have the records of the physical therapy. And so we've sent you the records of the physical therapy on three different occasions. Here are, well, we still don't have them. And it it is typically a a nurse reviewer who Mm -hmm. will be um, denying that. I had one patient whose surgery was not approved because she was deemed to be a smoker. And she called me crying. She goes, Dr. and I've never smoked a day in my life. And I said, yeah, we don't have any record of you smoking. And then they had to come back and apologize. Oh, small mistake. Nevertheless, that delayed her surgery for two weeks. This is the process that I think we can all agree needs to be improved because the intent of it has now been lost in this Byzantine, overly complicated system that has to have one intent, to slow down the rate of appropriate surgeries that need to happen so that commercial payers can continue to generate these record-breaking profits that they do quarter after quarter.
0: Interestingly, for cranial neurosurgery, there's typically not a lot of these prior authorizations that get canceled late. Why is that? I mean, I just noticed it in my own practice.
1: Yeah. So that's something that we've identified in our practice too, that our vascular colleagues and oncology colleagues tend to be more immune to this entity. So the fastest way to start an argument is show one MRI of the spine to two spine surgeons, you're going to get three different opinions. Whereas if there's a metastatic lesion to the brain, then I think that few people will, that is not a point of vulnerability. So yes, there's no question. And we've seen that in our practice and our analysis, we're working on an analysis among four practices, working through nerves, our neurosurgery management team. And we've seen that our vascular colleagues, oncology colleagues are more immune to this. And spine, on the other hand, is much more
0: vulnerable. Can you talk to us about what can only be called, I think, a scam, something that you've picked up on a new phenomenon called recoupment, where a surgeon performs an operation on a patient, receives payment, and then the insurance company tries to recoup the payment by subtracting it from another series of payments? How does that work? Yeah,
1: This is nothing short of remarkable. And I have to tip my hat. If I was looking at a way to optimize revenue, I guess I would come up with something similar, but I'm on the (laughs) receiving end of it. So it's not as appealing. So a recoupment is a very sinister device where you will do a procedure. I'll just give you an example in my practice. I will do a procedure in April of 2022 after going through all the prior authorization hurdles and whatnot, let's just call it a instrumented lumbar fusion for mobile grade one sponding. I will receive payment for that in August of 22. Then in March of 2023, when a commercial payer is paying for three different patients, they will say, okay, here's your payment for say $40,000. That is going to represent the payment in full for these other patients, this group of patients. However, of that $40,000, we're subtracting $11,000, which is recouping the entire payment of the patient from April of 2022 that you did. And so imagine what that does to the accounts receivable. So all of a sudden you have a payment for three or four or five patients in full. And from that has been subtracted a patient in whom your business office viewed as payment in Paid. full. Yeah. Now you've got to go back. And unravel that. And then again, now the hoops to jump through to be able to recoup on the recoupment. And our capacity to recoup on the recoupment is 30%. And we are actively pursuing it. Meaning that of the 100% of, and these numbers are not inconsequential. It's it's well over $100,000 per the provider. Of wow. that, we were able to recoup as of right now about 30% of what they've what they taken. And then they subtract it back. They don't ask for it's not like my office. I go, "How? who wrote that check? They go, oh, yeah. they're not writing a check. They're subtracting it. And for a business office, which is already taxed, to try and unravel that element, it is a perfect grenade to put into a business office, to put that into further upheaval, further confusion, and to distract from the various other responsibilities that they have to fulfill in order to be able to just keep the practice running. And so- sure
0: they can go back a year or even more than a year? I mean,
1: they can go back a year or more than a year. And when you describe this, I always call this the litmus test of the playground. If I describe this to my 11 year old, he (laughs) looks at me, he goes, that doesn't sound fair. And then when I explain this to my wife, she goes, is that even legal? Now let's go again and back to my flood in December of last year. Could my insurance carrier go to my contractor? When he's working on another house and subtract the entire work that was done on mine, again, what other industry tolerates this? And this is the importance of advocacy. This is the importance of the Washington office. We can move this needle. We can do something about it. We just need to have the awareness and we need buy-in from everyone, our academic colleagues, our hospital-employed colleagues, because our private practitioners are suffering terribly. We all need to be on the same front saying no other industry tolerates this. We are not going to tolerate it either.
0: I mean, you brought up a good point that those who are employed in academics or even employed physicians for a healthcare system, they need to be involved even though they're not seeing this. This is being done by their recruitment people in the background, but they need to dig into that and show them how they're being unfairly treated and the financial gain will make them much more powerful in their own health system. It's hard to to get people interested in that, but it will ultimately affect everyone's compensation going forward. So your advice to us, to the rank and file neurosurgeon regarding this would be what?
1: Like I said, pop open the hood and take a look at the engine. Take a look at how your practice works. Take a look. The the money has to come from somewhere. For the individuals who say, look, I'm hospital employed. It really doesn't affect me. I would suggest that that may be a myopic perspective because at the end of the contract term, they'll say, look, this was your contribution margin. So the contract you originally signed no longer has the same value. We're going to start paying you this. Yeah. If you were able to maintain your value, and again, this is all to do with maintaining the value of the neurosurgeon and being good stewards of our field. We need to hold the line. Steve Jobs, Larry Ellison, it's how you keep score. Who, who else is getting it? The hospital administrators, the commercial payers. No, it needs to be the individuals who take the risk of putting these patients under anesthesia, who get the calls at three o'clock in the morning. There is no CEO of any commercial payer who's going to take a blood clot out at two o'clock in the morning and sit down and have that horrible conversation with a a mother and a father. This is what we do, and we have the greatest value, and we need to define our value, and this is one of the measures in which we can do that.
0: After they've dug under the hood and looked at some of these things... I mean, would it help at this point, since there is legislation, to contact any friends they have in the legislature to say, hey, can you jump on, co-sponsor this, help us move it forward? What kind of advocacy efforts uh, should we be doing there?
1: Absolutely. So Katie O'Rico and the Washington office will send out emails from time to time, where all you have to do is click where you are, your your home state and your you district, live, yeah. and a letter will populate that you actually have to hit send. It takes less than two minutes And that would be a very low activation energy for advocacy, getting involved with your own local politics. And if you have any connections, we all by circumstance will run into individuals and then just create that narrative. But it all begins with having that wherewithal to begin with. And again, with having a shared consciousness of what it is that we want to do, and that is increase the value of neurosurgery by not allowing our industry to be affected in a way that no other industry tolerates. We have to be the ones who hold the line, and we have to be intentional. We can't be accidental, and we have to have a unified front across all of our, whether hospital-employed, academic, or private practice.
0: Well spoken, Lou. I really appreciate it. We're getting a little long here, so I close each podcast with one question, and that is for you, Cardinals or Diamondbacks? <laughs>
1: Well, there's no question that the St. Louis Cardinals, not the football Cardinals. <laughs> That's um, right. I the, forgot. The, That's right. The, the, the problem, I grew up in St. Louis, so Bill Bidwell took the uh, Cardinals out of uh, St. Louis in, I think, 1988 is the correct year. And so yeah. uh, when you say Cardinals, the only time my kids have gone to a Diamondback games is to watch the finest team in baseball. Having a rough year this year, admittedly, but the finest team in baseball to play the Diamondbacks. So, That's, yeah. so
0: St. Louis Cardinals is it. That's for sure. Thanks, yeah. Lou. No, it has thanks been for having me. really an honor to have Lou Tumialin as our guest today on the AANS practice in business management podcast. It's really been an honor. Thank you for being here and we'll have you back. I'm sure sometime very soon. It's been my privilege. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. We will catch you next week on another episode of the it's not brain surgery podcast.